Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to that passage we just read, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, we will be in verse 20 here in just a moment. But first... In the year 1992, a prominent news outlet here in the States published a story about the sitting president at the time, who was George H.W. Bush. It was based on the moment that this picture was taken. So in the story, it described President Bush as being amazed, almost dumbfounded at the way that a grocery store barcode scanner worked. Which was interesting, given that by that time in history, barcode scanners had been in use for some 16 years or so. So obviously, only an out-of-touch elite like President Bush, a man completely unfamiliar with the lives of ordinary Americans, would be amazed at a 16-year-old piece of technology. After the story was written... Pundits and broadcasters and political cartoonists absolutely ran with the story, painting President Bush as entirely buffoonish for his ignorance about this basic technology. It became fuel for a narrative that was already forming in the country at the time where people were concerned that President Bush was out of his depth. He was unable to manage the U.S. economy to make it work for average Americans. I mean, after all, he evidently doesn't even know how the average American buys groceries. The somewhat fascinating thing about the barcode scanner story, though, is that it was substantially misrepresented. President Bush actually wasn't in a grocery store looking at an ordinary barcode scanner. He was at a convention for the National Grocers Association, where a brand new grocery store technology was being exhibited for the first time. The scanner he was commenting on was a brand new version, as the full photo actually shows. He was commenting on a brand new version of a barcode scanner where the scanner could read damaged barcodes as well as weigh produce that you set on it, both of which were brand new capabilities in the year 1992. In other words, he knew how a barcode scanner worked. He was just marveling at the development of a new technology, much like you and I probably would have. The real story was that he was a bit of a tech nerd, and he was genuinely interested in the technology that he was looking at. But that's not nearly as interesting of a story as one titled, President Bush has no idea how a grocery store works. What's even more interesting is that the person who wrote this original story about how he didn't know how the barcode scanner worked wasn't even present for the event when it happened. He was writing his article secondhand based on just a two-word description from a press pool report written by someone who was there for it. But despite all efforts to provide context to the story and explain what had actually happened on that day, the false narrative was already out there. 
People had already heard it. They had already formed an entire perception around it. One columnist at the time actually described this incident as politically devastating for the president who ended up losing his reelection effort later that year. As the old adage says, a lie travels much faster than the truth. And regardless of what you think about George H.W. Bush or about his presidency, I think we can all grieve a world in which lies are sometimes more potent and more easily spread than the truth is. Generally speaking, our society is so much quicker to believe things that sound exciting or shocking or interesting, whether or not they're true, than things that sound boring but happen to be true which is unfortunate because lies, at least most lies, are not harmless. Lies sow distrust between friends. They, they color and malign people's reputations. They destroy relationships, careers, and sometimes people's very lives. It's no coincidence that in the Bible, Satan is called the father of lies, The devil himself is very aware that if he wants to make our world an altogether terrible place to be, one of the most powerful weapons at his disposal are lies. Lies can be an unbelievably destructive thing. And it is that insidious power of lies that I would argue motivates the ninth commandment. So let's read it again from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20. It says this, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. That phrase, false testimony there, is most literally false witness. It was language borrowed from the ancient legal world at the time. It's courtroom imagery, in other words. In a society before there was CCTV footage and iPhone cameras and body cams and audio recordings, the most powerful testament that you had to what did or did not happen in a given situation was the number of eyewitnesses you could find who were present for the situation. The more eyewitnesses you could find, the more certain you were that you could accurately determine what had happened and hold the correct people accountable for it in a court of law, which also meant that the integrity of those eyewitnesses you found mattered tremendously. These days, you and I probably don't put a lot of stock into a person's word unless we know them pretty well or know their character even better. Today, I think we tend to assume that almost everyone has an agenda. Everyone has a slant until proven otherwise. But back then, a much higher priority was placed on people's trustworthiness. If a person could not be trusted to tell the truth about something that they witnessed, well, then they couldn't be trusted to do or say much of anything. Personal integrity was paramount in those days. So into that world and that dynamic, God gives us the ninth commandment. It instructs us, commands us not to give false testimony against our neighbor. That word neighbor in the passage has a very broad sort of meaning. It can mean anything from a close friend to just any old person that we come across in our society. It's, it's kind of like the word someone in English. It's a very nonspecific, nondescriptive term. 
God is saying that regardless of who the other person is and regardless of how familiar or unfamiliar we are with them, we should never perpetuate information about them that we are not sure is true. To do that in any form would be to give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, sometimes people in church world will paraphrase this commandment as simply being a command not to lie. And while it is that, it's also way more than that. It's more specific than that. It's, it's specifically a command not to lie about people or, or lie about a situation in such a way that it misrepresents a certain person or their character as a result. It's a command about truth-telling in the context of our relationships. So if you can remember all the way back to week two of this series that we've been in on the Ten Commandments, you remember that we said the Ten Commandments sort of operate from a number of different moral foundations, is the language that we use, which are ways of thinking about right and wrong that undergird the commandments themselves. And this command about not bearing false testimony, I think it assumes a few different moral frameworks. First, it assumes the care-harm framework. It assumes care harm. It's wrong to bear false testimony about someone because doing so, in a way, harms that other person. It inaccurately and unfairly tears down and maligns their reputation without due cause. This command also assumes the fairness and cheating framework. To, To lie about someone is generally done in a setting where that other person is not present to respond to what you're saying about them. In many cases, it's actually done in a setting where they don't even know that you're talking about them behind their back. So by nature, it is an unfair situation. You are speaking negatively and dishonestly about another person when they cannot defend themselves against what you're saying. As the proverb says, uh, one who states their case first seems like they're right until another one comes and examines them. And then in some instances, I would say this particular command assumes the loyalty betrayal framework. If the the person that you're lying about is a close friend or family member, someone who has placed some amount of trust in you that you are betraying by lying about them, it is disloyal to them to bear false testimony. So from all sorts of different angles, bearing false testimony against a neighbor is morally wrong. I think you could make a case that out of all 10 commandments, this commandment has the widest variety of reasons that it's wrong to do. And I think probably because of that, most of us would would like to think that we don't just go around lying about people on a regular basis. If you do, as always, consider this your official invitation from the Bible to stop. But I would imagine most of us would say, I don't really lie about people super often. That's not really something I do as a habit. But as always, as we've been saying throughout this series, there may be ways that we are guilty of violating this commandment, even if we don't use this precise language to describe it. So what I wanted to do for the next little bit is offer you some ways that I've seen this particular commandment, the ninth commandment, violated in present day society. What are some ways that we may have given false testimony against our neighbors, whether we actually called it that when it was happening or not? 
The first most obvious form that I would say it takes is what we might call slander, what the Bible calls slander. To slander is to say something untrue about someone else with the express purpose of tearing down their reputation or their character. Biblically, slander is literally to speak evil of or against another person. It's saying something that isn't true about them with the intent of making them look bad in front of other people. So for instance, it's saying things like going to your coworkers at work and telling them that you're certain that your boss is sexist or racist even when you have no actual data to substantiate that claim. It's when you say that a life group member or a church leader is an unsafe person when all you really mean is that they confronted you on something one time and you didn't like it. It's when someone makes you feel less than, so you retaliate by starting a rumor or several rumors about them. Slander is any time that you say something negative, malicious, or evil against another person that you know is not actually true when you say it. That is a form of bearing false witness against your neighbor. But so is, next category, gossip. Gossip. The word gossip in the Bible literally means secret slander. Secret slander. So gossip is when you say the same types of things as in slander, for the same types of reasons as in slander, but you say it in a more low-key type of presentation. You, you whisper it instead of shouting it. You suggest it instead of insisting that it's true. You, you ask it as a question instead of stating it as a fact. If slander sounds like going to someone at your job and saying, our boss is a sexist, gossip is when you go to them and you say, our boss seems kind of sexist, doesn't he? Do you think that person is having an affair? Maybe. I heard that person voted for fill in the blank. Isn't that crazy? Gossip is the practice of subtly, secretly slandering someone in what is usually seen as socially acceptable sorts of ways. It's saying things that either you know aren't true or at least things that you aren't sure are true when you say them. That too is to give false testimony. You're suggesting information about another person that you don't have any degree of certainty about when you say it. That's giving false testimony too. And then third, there's what we might just call unwholesome talk. Unwholesome talk. So for this one, look with me on the screen at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Here's the way it puts it. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So unwholesome talk is probably the broadest category that there is out there. It's basically just talking about things that we know we shouldn't be talking about with with reasons that we know are not good reasons to talk about it. And specifically, when it's talking about other people, and when we speculate about things that we don't have certainty about, it can easily become giving false testimony against them. 
So here's the best way I know to describe it to you. Unwholesome talk is when a conversation about someone ceases to be productive, ceases to be fruitful, and devolves into something less than that. It's when it devolves into just talking about the other person for the sake of talking about them in a less than positive light. Uh, One of the most terrifying verses that I am aware of in the New Testament and the Bible is Matthew uh, chapter 12, verse 36, that says, we will have to give an account for every careless word we utter. That's terrifying, especially for somebody like me that talks a lot. And probably some of what I say is careless, which means that's going to be a very long meeting between me and God when I meet him one day, because I'm going to have a lot of careless words to explain in my life. But this is how seriously the Bible takes how we use our words. I think sometimes we don't take our words as seriously as God does. Sometimes unwholesome talk could, could be when you find yourself in a situation where slander or gossip is happening in front of you and you just laugh at it and encourage it and go along with it rather than putting a stop to it. Rather than saying, hey, I don't, I don't think this is a helpful discussion right now. According to Ephesians 4, anytime there is not an objective of helping or building up the person that you're talking to or the person that you're talking about, I would say you need to be very, very careful about what you say. Because that conversation can easily become something that it does not need to be. It can very easily and quickly morph into something like unwholesome talk, into bearing false witness against a neighbor. So let's imagine a scenario real quick. Try to make this as practical as we can. Let's say that you and I are in a life group together. And there's a third person in our life group named Sam, but you and I are out to dinner one night and we're talking without Sam present about some of the ways that we want to see Sam grow in certain areas of his life. We're talking about how to help him grow. Now, as long as that conversation between you and I stays brief and stays focused and stays centered on the question, how do we help Sam grow, I would argue it's probably a completely fine conversation for us to be having even without Sam there. But if that conversation begins to devolve into all the ways that we're frustrated by Sam and venting about all the other things in Sam's life that we want to say to him but we're not saying to him, If we start talking about all the other things that have nothing to do with the present conversation that we are bothered by in the way that Sam acts, in the way that Sam talks, well, then I would say it has actually become what Ephesians calls unwholesome talk. We are no longer having a discussion about how to help Sam. We're having an unfruitful discussion about Sam without him there. A discussion that's not helping Sam, and it's also not helping us help Sam, We're just ranting, venting, getting stuff off of our chest that we are actively avoiding saying to him. When in fact, those things might be very helpful to bring up to him if they're brought up well. So I think that's what Ephesians 4 is trying to help us caution against is unwholesome talk. Talk that's not productive, that's not beneficial to anyone having the conversation or anyone the conversation is about. And I'll just add this while we're on the topic. Uh, Whenever possible, 
when there is an issue with someone in your life, just talk to the person the issue is with. Meaning that a lot of times, you don't need to talk to the other person in your life group about how to help Sam. You just need to go help Sam. Does that make sense? If you're a follower of Jesus, that means you have the spirit of the living God inside you. And a lot of the time, he can give you all the wisdom you need on how to have those types of conversations with people. And sometimes there's actually no legitimate reason that you need to talk to someone else about the situation first. Just go talk to the person. Now, if there are moments where you are unsure of how to be helpful, in conversations like that. Say you're brand new to community or brand new to following Jesus and you're not used to these types of direct conversations that happen in a community of Jesus followers like this. If that's the case, I would say feel free to run it by someone else in your life group that's been following Jesus for longer, has more experience in those types of conversations. Run your plan by them and let them speak into any ways that you might could do it differently or better. That can be totally fine. But at the end of the day, as swiftly, as directly as you can, just go talk to Sam about it. He's the one in need of help, wisdom, correction, counsel, whatever it is. So just go talk to him about it. You can probably tell that I'm a little passionate about this. Let me explain why. I tell people often that about 80% of my job as a pastor is just getting people to talk to each other about the issues they have with each other. And that's only kind of an exaggeration. I think most days that is about 80% of my job. I wish I could tell you the amount of times that I sit in my office with someone or over coffee with someone and I hear them explain something that's going on with a friend of theirs or with another follower of Jesus or with somebody in their small group or whatever it is and then they end the conversation and they want me to go talk to that person about it. And I always respond, I try not to be sarcastic, but sometimes it's sarcastic. Wait, was I there when this happened? To which usually the answer is no. And then I say, well, then why would I need to go have this conversation with this person? Because that's gonna devolve into a pretty unhelpful game of telephone between the three of us pretty quickly. And I don't think we're actually gonna get anywhere with it. When in doubt, just go talk to the person the issue is with. Our church and churches in general, I think, could save ourselves a substantial amount of drama and conflict and headaches if when there was a problem with a person, we just went and talked to the person about it. Not talk about the problem with the person first. Not talk to get 14 different people's perspective on the problem before we talk to them about it. But just talk to the person the problem is with. That's how scripture says it should happen. At least first. So am I making sense? Can we commit to that together as a church family? I knew you guys would be on board with that. You're great. Thank you. (laughs) To summarize, uh, the three things that we've mentioned so far. Slander. Gossip, unwholesome talk. Three common expressions that I've seen of what the ninth commandment calls giving false testimony against others. Now, before we move on to talking about what we should do about all of this, if we find it present in our life, I do want to mention one other form that I have seen this take through the years. 
And in some ways, I kind of feel like it's the most pressing one for us to bring up because it's the easiest to fall into and sometimes it's the most destructive to participate in. So one other form that I've seen false testimony come in would be this. So far, everything we've talked about has been related to bearing false testimony against your neighbor, i.e. another person in your life. But I think there's also a form of this that we could just call Bearing false testimony about yourself. Bearing false testimony about yourself. Let me try to explain this one. In my life personally, the moments when I am most prone to lie or to misrepresent certain situations are moments when I think I have something to gain by lying. It's when the lie will make me personally look better than telling the truth will. So if, if I'm recounting a situation, for example, where I was made to look foolish or sinful or outright wrong, but I tweak the details a little bit in the way that I tell the story, I leave certain parts of the conversation out strategically, well, then all of a sudden, I don't have to look foolish or sinful or wrong in the scenario anymore. I can look wise and virtuous and right which just personally are some of my favorite ways to look in the eyes of other people. If I recount a situation where I said something unthinkable to the other person, just something I never should have uttered, but I leave that part of the conversation out and how I retell the story, well, all of a sudden I look pretty good in the scenario. I said only the right things. If I made a terrible decision for our church, a selfish decision that impacted way more people in really significant ways, but I can explain the decision that I made away by making it look like I did what I did for the good of others, like it was the only decision that I possibly had, well, all of a sudden, I look pretty good in that scenario. This, at least most of the time, is a reason that we tend to lie. It's self-preservation, self-commendation, and sometimes self-pity, which is really just the other side of the same coin, right? If we can explain the situation and go, man, look, look how tough I had it. I mean, I couldn't have possibly done anything better. I really think you should feel sorry for me rather than being mad at me. Often this is the reason that we lie which means there is another very insidious type of giving false testimony out there, and that's giving false testimony about yourself. Claiming to be something that you aren't. Claiming you did things that you didn't do. Claiming you said things that you didn't say and actually have no plans to say in the future. Misrepresenting yourself to other people for your own benefit. Sometimes I think we do this one so instinctively that we don't even realize we're doing it. Tiny, seemingly insignificant little embellishments in how we talk about our lives. Saying things at work like, oh yeah, that's in progress, when what we really mean is I'm aware that I need to start on it. Saying things to our professors at school like, oh, well, I didn't get that assignment done because I had a family emergency come up. When the family member who had an emergency was you and the emergency was that you forgot about the assignment. <laughs> uh, 
I'll give you another example of how I see this one happen often, and that's on social media. Social media, I think, has given us the perfect outlet to bear false testimony about ourselves, to pretend to be something we aren't. Let me me just ask you the question. If someone in this room right now were to comb through your Instagram feed, your Facebook timeline, right now, would you say that what they are seeing there is an accurate depiction of your life, of what your life is like? Or would you say it it more represents what you want your life to be like, what you wish your life was like all the time? Is it more representative of the really fun, really exciting parts of your life and nothing else? Now, I get that some of that is just how social media works, right? Like, obviously, if we go do something really fun or something really memorable, we are going to be inclined to post about those things online. I don't think that's necessarily wrong to do. I'm not saying it's wrong to post about the fun things in your life. But here's what I am saying, and here's what I think is really important in the generation, the time that we exist in right now. Be very, very wary of curating a social media depiction of your life to hide your real life behind. Be very wary of concealing your real struggles, your real sins, your real difficulties behind a false social media persona that you post online. I will never forget uh, one time when I'd only been a pastor for a few years, it was a different church in South Carolina, There was a couple in that church that had the most incredible social media presence you can ever imagine. They had tens, if not hundreds of thousands of followers, just, you know, influencer level reach on their accounts. Uh, Every photo that they posted was of the two of them perfectly shot and edited and posed and filtered and all of that. So they both had uh, flexible work schedules and traveled the world constantly and posted about everywhere that they went. They would actually get paid by different restaurants and breweries and stuff like that to post about the places that they went. Like they would get money because they had that many followers on their accounts. So just the whole nine yards. Like if you scrolled through this couple's account, uh, you would think that their life was a movie. You would come away thinking that you wanted your life and your marriage to look exactly like their life and their marriage because it was picture perfect in every way. And then one day, seemingly out of the blue, the wife informed us that she had filed for divorce. Evidently, her husband had been involved in multiple affairs, had been cheating on her nonstop for years. Every time he would get caught, he would apologize and then immediately do it again. Evidently, uh, eventually, when he would get caught, he would then blame it on her. Something about her not being available enough to him or not loving him well, something like that. This went on long enough that eventually the wife started having an affair just to get back at her husband for making her life miserable. And after a couple of years of that, she had just decided it wasn't worth it anymore. And all of this was happening in the background, unknown to anyone in their life, while they were traveling the country and posting amazing photos of the two of them in incredible locations how great their marriage was, how great their life was. And I understand that that's an extreme example. But at the same time, 
I would guess that it is probably just a caricatured example of what a lot of us tend to do with social media. It's proof of this tendency that we have in us to give false testimony about ourselves, to present ourselves as something other than what we are, to to cultivate a public perception that has almost nothing in common with our actual lives. And I think that story about that couple might just need to serve as a cautionary tale for us about the real substantial damage it can do to our souls when we bear false testimony about ourselves. And that can happen in social media or entirely different ways. Uh, One thing that came to mind in the first service just felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to say it. Uh, Some of you in your dating life right now, your main strategy in getting a guy or a girl to date you is to present yourself as somebody completely different than who you are. And I'm telling you, that might feel like it works right now. It is going to bear terrible fruit two, five, ten years down the road when that person finds out that you are nothing like the person you presented yourself as. And so listen, I, I just, I, I've got to say this because I think we are convinced that we are tricking everybody and sometimes I think we end up tricking ourselves into believing our own propaganda. We end up convincing ourselves that we are somebody other than who we are and listen, I'm, I'm here to tell you that's not the way the Christian life works. You cannot deceive yourself into maturity. You cannot present yourself as someone other than who you are and think that that's going to lead to real substantial fruit and growth in your life. The question is this. Are we regularly presenting ourselves as something other than who we are? Are we perpetuating a public image of ourselves that has little in common with our actual life? Or maybe to ask the same question, but to ask it positively. Are there people in your life right now that you hold absolutely nothing back from? I understand you can't disclose everything about yourself to everybody you meet. That would be impossible. But I do think all of us as followers of Jesus, we should have at least a few people in our life that know everything there is to know about us. They should know the stuff we're ashamed of the stuff that haunts us, the stuff that plagues us day in and day out. And most importantly, people who can remind us of what is true of us in Jesus despite all of those things. They can remind us of the grace and the compassion that he offers in the midst of everything that we're ashamed of, everything we are inclined to Do you have someone like that in your life? I would argue that if you want to grow and mature as a follower of Jesus, relationships like that are absolutely essential. And they're essential in part because of the negative impact of not having them. If we choose continually to give false testimony about ourselves, there is a really harmful cumulative effect to doing that over time. And that's that the longer we functionally lie about who we are, the more insulated we become from real relationships with other people, real friendships. 
Because for us to feel truly loved and accepted by other people, we need to know that they know the real us. If they only love the projection of us that we've put out there for them, we will always feel relatively unknown. I heard one pastor say that if you are 99% known by other people, you are 100% unknown. There will always be this thought in the back of our mind, if we're presenting ourselves as something other than what we are, there will always be this thought, conscious or subconscious, in the back of our minds, that if people knew the real us, there's no way they would accept us. So here's the million dollar question we've got to answer. Why do we give false testimony in the first place? What drives us towards it? What, what is it in us that inclines us to lie repeatedly about others and about ourselves? Why do we do that? Because it seems that until we understand why we do it, we're probably not going to have much luck at just spontaneously not doing it. So here's my guess as to why we bear false testimony. I think deep down we lie because we think the lie will win us acceptance faster and easier than the truth. We lie because we think lying will win us acceptance faster and easier than the truth will. I mean, isn't that usually it? So if I lie about my productivity at work, if I make people think I'm getting more done than I actually am, isn't it because telling that lie about my productivity will win me acceptance with the people I work with easier and faster than just putting forth the work, putting forth the effort to do the work well? Isn't that why we're lying? If, if I lie in my marriage, it, isn't it because lying will win me the acceptance and the comfort and the artificial peace in my marriage easier and faster than telling the truth will? If I gossip about that other person in front of people, isn't it because gossiping will win me the acceptance of the other people I'm talking to easier and faster than telling the truth will, or much easier and faster than standing up for what's right will? We give false testimony because it feels like an easier, quicker path to acceptance from others than telling the truth. But of course, the problem with that approach, as we've already noted, is that we are only ever achieving superficial acceptance, superficial approval. People in those moments are not accepting the real us, they're accepting the altered version of us that we've presented to them. False testimony tells us that as long as we are willing to keep bending the truth, we can keep finding acceptance from others. But the problem is that that acceptance has a diminishing return. It never quite scratches the itch the way that we want because people are not accepting the real us. They're accepting the fake us. The gospel of Jesus, on the other hand, tells us that if we are willing to tell the truth about ourselves and about others, we can have the eternal acceptance from the only one who truly matters. You see, this is why Satan is so deeply invested in lies, because if he can get us living in the world of lies, we will never experience the power of the gospel. But if we discover the acceptance that is ours through the gospel, we all of a sudden have no need for lies anymore. 
They hold no power over us. The, the acceptance and the approval and the comfort and the manufactured peace that you are currently seeking to obtain by bearing false witness, all of those things are just a shadow of the acceptance you already have in Jesus. And if you are willing to let go of the shadow, I promise what you will find in return is far better. You see, God doesn't just tell us not to lie. He rescues us from the need to lie. He redeems us out of the power that lies would hold over us otherwise. So the question becomes, how do we practically experience that freedom that is offered to us in the gospel? What do we do when we realize that we have been taken captive by the power of lies and giving false testimony. Two things here. If you've been around our church for any amount of time, these will not be surprising. We talk about them a lot. Two things. First, you confess. You confess. Confess is just a word that means being entirely honest about our sin. We acknowledge what we've done. We acknowledge that it was wrong to do. That's it. You say, here's what I did, and it wasn't okay for me to do, and I'm sorry. I said this thing, and that was not an okay thing for me to say. I told you this thing about myself, and that was a lie. That's not who I actually am. That's not what I actually did. Now, you might ask, okay, acknowledge it, confess it to whom? To to God or to other people? Biblically, the answer to that question is yes. You acknowledge it to God and to other people. As followers of Jesus, we believe that sin is first and foremost against God. But at the same time, we believe that sin, especially sins like bearing false testimony, also have a horizontal component to them. They're often relational in their expression, which means that when we sin, we also need to confess to the person the sin was with or against So if we participated in slander or gossip or unwholesome talk with someone else, and I think especially if it was another follower of Jesus that we participated in it with, we go to that person that it was with and we say, hey, the other day when we were talking about this situation or this person, what I said was not okay. It wasn't true, or at least I wasn't sure that it was true, and it wasn't done with the other person's best interest in mind, and so it wasn't okay for me to say, and I wanted to apologize for doing it. And then I think especially in cases where what we said in a certain setting made its way back to the person that it was about, I think we also need to confess to that person. We need to say, hey, I said this about you in this setting the other day, and I'm sure it was hurtful when it made its way back to you. And it wasn't okay for me to say, and I want you to know that, and I'm sorry. As awkward and as uncomfortable as that conversation will be to have, it is so much better than just letting the division and rift between you and that person continue to grow over time. Just like we would hope that if someone had talked about us behind our back, they would apologize to us, we need to do the same thing. The scriptures say that we should do unto others what we wish they would do unto us. All of that is confession. First step, if we realize we've been taken captive by bearing false witness, we confess to God and to other followers of Jesus what happened. Then second, we repent. We repent. The word repent in the Bible means most literally to change. It's the picture of going one way 
than having a change of mind and heart such that you stop going that way, you turn around, and you start going the other way instead. So in regards to giving false testimony, repentance would mean that after acknowledging the wrongdoing, after confessing it, we make regular efforts not to participate in it. Doesn't mean we never fail in those efforts, but it does mean that we make an effort. We ask for accountability among those that we are most inclined to slander and gossip with. We make efforts to use our words in ways that build up other people and not tear down. We make efforts to live in transparent ways with other people and not present ourselves as something other than what we are. We own it whenever we fail to do any of that well, and we ask for the Holy Spirit's help in motivating us to approach those situations differently. That's what it means to repent. Biblically, we're told that this type of change happens through renewing our minds. That's the language of Romans chapter 12, renewing our minds, which means that while it does require effort to repent, it's not just a matter of effort. It's actually a change in the way we think and what we believe that generates an effort to change. So it's predicated on the belief that other people don't deserve to have me gossip or slander or talk about them behind their backs. It's based on the belief that I exist to encourage and build up other people, not tear other people down. It's based on an understanding that the the community that we're a part of cannot function if everyone is constantly assassinating each other's character behind their backs and if everyone is suspicious that other people are doing that. It's us having an epiphany that all of that, that any of those things are inconsistent with the gospel message and inconsistent with the kingdom of God and its values, and then deciding in light of all of that, in light of that realization, to live life differently in response. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's the work of repentance in the life of a follower of Jesus. And so if we, as we say often in our membership class, repentance is not just a one-time thing we do when we decide to follow Jesus for the first time. It's something we do over and over again as we follow Jesus. One theologian said that the entire Christian life is one of repentance. So each week, we conclude by coming to the tables together throughout this room and remembering the moment when Jesus made all of this possible for us, when he made a relationship with him possible, when Jesus went to the cross on our behalf and offered us something better than artificial acceptance, and when he made living out of that acceptance from him a possibility for us as followers of Jesus. We celebrate that moment by taking the bread and the cup, which represents Jesus' body and blood that was given for us. But before we do that this morning, in light of what we've been talking about today, I just want you to consider one thing before you go to the tables. In keeping with the true and trustworthy character of Jesus, Revelation calls him the true and faithful witness. In keeping with his character, I don't want any of us to come to the tables this morning and not acknowledge ways that we have failed to be true and trustworthy. 
So this morning, if you felt any amount of conviction, any awareness of ways that you may have given false testimony about others or about yourself, I want to invite you, motivated by the gospel of Jesus, to own that, to acknowledge it, to confess it. Before you go to the tables, confess that to God and confess that to someone you came with, someone in your life group who's here, another follower of Jesus. Acknowledge that to them. Acknowledge the ways that you may have misrepresented God, yourself and others, and then receive communion as a tangible reminder of how God offers us his acceptance despite all of that. There's a passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, if you're making your gift at the altar and you realize that your brother or sister has something against you, Stop where you are, go and make things right with that brother or sister, and then come back and offer your gift. I think the same mindset applies to communion. When we take of the body and the blood, the bread and the cup here on Sundays, what we are doing is we are saying that those things are the story of our life, the story that we are living by. And that's not just true in some sort of artificial, weird, supernatural, spiritual sense. That's true practically. And so if there's something between us and a brother or sister, if there's something we know is not right, it is more worshipful to go and make things right with that brother or sister than it is to take communion and pretend that things are right in your life. So that's what I'm going to call you to do this morning. Maybe there's nothing. Maybe you're already doing that. Maybe you've dealt with stuff this morning, earlier this week, and everything's good. And if so, awesome. That's incredible. Come and take communion as a reminder of the gospel that makes all of that possible. But I would just encourage you to take a moment before you come to the tables, before we celebrate communion together, and just go, is any part of my life not consistent with this message? And let me acknowledge it, let me confess it, let me show my intention to repent of it, and then let me take communion as a reminder of the fact that God set his affections on me through Jesus, despite all of that stuff that I tend to do wrong. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what we get to celebrate together as a church family. Let me pray for us.